You can turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. We'll look at verses 6 through 8 this morning, and the text is also printed in the bulletin on the next page, Genesis 3, 6 to 8. So, um, as you can tell uh, from most of the liturgy, it's Easter, it's Resurrection Sunday, it's a day where we uh, think um, largely about uh, the risen Lord Jesus, the fact that he came back to life, that his father raised him from the grave uh, after his sacrifice on the cross for us. Uh, You'll be able to tell that from most of the liturgy, but unfortunately, this is not a very resurrection-oriented sermon. Um, We're just kind of tracking along with our regular, uh, with our regularly scheduled series on Genesis 1 through 3, Uh, but we do meet every Sunday because of the resurrection. We meet on Sunday uh, every week. You can join us here for basically resurrection day worship. Uh, That's why we meet on Sundays. Um, So just so you know, we're not focusing on that in the sermon today, but it is really the the thing that knits us together as a people and why we gather uh, in Christ's name on this particular day of the week every week. So, but this morning uh, we will talk about um, (laughs) shame and guilt and feeling exposed. (laughs) It's good. Happy Easter themes, right? This pervasive sense that we all have of uh, standing exposed before God. Uh, we'll talk about that, how we try to cope with that, like how that uh, kind of drives basically most of our lives, trying to escape this sense of shame and guilt and exposure that we have in God's sight, um, how we try to cope with it, and then what the gospel solution is to that universal problem. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Uh, so let me pray. Then we'll read the scripture. Father, we are come here again uh, before you, uh, sitting at your feet to hear your word, to hear you give the diagnosis of our problem, the problem that this whole world has, to hear you tell us what is wrong with us. And... um, That is something we usually don't want to hear. We don't want to hear it from each other, and um, we particularly don't want to hear it from you. And so we pray that you would overcome our resistance to hearing your word, to hearing your true and accurate diagnosis of what's what's truly wrong inside of us, that you would help us to see um, that you're not out to get us by telling us what's wrong with us, what's broken inside. Help us to see that you're on our side, that you want what's best for us, that you've provided the solution that every single person on the the planet needs in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give us the assurance of your love as we sit and hear your word this morning so that we would be changed into the likeness of Jesus, your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So uh, we've been talking about Genesis 3 for a few weeks. Here we're beginning to see the effects of the rebellion, uh, the effects of, um, of the fall, the ruination of humanity. In, in preceding weeks, we've talked about temptation, the devil's deceit, and uh, what temptation looks like inside of each of our hearts. And we've talked about sin, what that really is at its core. Um, and now we see the, the effects of sin. The effects when temptation leads to sin, what happens? What happens? And the first of these effects that we see is, um, is shame. Right? It's real guilt. It's a real instinctive knowledge of something being wrong with us. Before this chapter, at the, at the end of chapter 2, you've kind of got this, um, this summary of the, the state in which Adam and Eve existed when they were originally created in God's image for relationship with him uh, and set over the world in uh, a place of uh, authority and, um, and even in God's own place to enjoy his own position in the world and to enjoy a relationship of pure intimacy. The, the summary statement that you have, the very last verse of chapter 2, which kind of has this foreboding uh, hint in it, but it's that uh, they were both naked and not ashamed. They were naked and not ashamed. Right? So they experienced pure intimacy. It's hard for us to imagine what that would be like for Adam and Eve to be together in the garden, in God's presence, naked and not ashamed, fully open to one another, uh, fully intimate with one another, experiencing that, that pure mutual knowing, real deep knowledge, mutual knowledge that we were created for. They had that, and then we lost it, right? We broke it. Um, they had that, and then they sinned. And our, um, our church's constitutional documents the Westminster Confession, Shorter Catechism, uh, Larger Catechism, those, those things that we think are, offer a pretty good summary of the Bible's teachings uh, about the, the core of our salvation, what we really need, and, and who Jesus really is, and how he's provided uh, salvation for us by his grace. The Westminster Confession says about this, that the fall, so the, the ruination of humanity, the, the original sin that changed the state of humanity in their relationship with God and with each other, the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Sin and misery. Right? So sin and the consequences of sin. Misery. That's the state in which we exist now. And here we have just the, the first glimpse of it. Here at the beginning of the scriptures that show the trajectory of all the Bible, that show our deepest need, the, the, the universal need of all humanity is to be restored to a right relationship with God. And here we have what happens when, when we took ourselves out of that relationship. When Adam and Eve first sinned, they had this misery and they had it in themselves. Right? God's not here yet. God's not in these verses yet. He comes into the, the garden at the end here, and he interacts with them after this. But first we see that they were miserable after they sinned, after they, they ate of the fruit that was forbidden to them in rebellion against God. After they sinned, they just had this misery descend upon them, like naturally, right? in themselves. They didn't need someone outside of themselves to condemn them. They had their eyes opened which is a, kind of a strange phrase 
this is a, not a good eye-opening, right? This is not a good eye-opening experience that um, they had. But basically it means they became aware of their guilt. They became aware of their shame. They became aware of the fact that something was wrong here, and I stand exposed in that, right? Um, <clears throat> and so they came to know good and evil, which was the, the fruit came from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God wanted them to, to know good and evil as he knew good and evil uh, through obedience, through a righteous relationship with God. They would, they would come to be wise. Uh, they would not rely on their own understanding. They would not gain this knowledge of good and evil in rebellion against God, but that's the way they chose it. They chose to, to pursue the knowledge of good and evil. They chose to pursue wisdom and, and some sort of growth and autonomy from God in rebellion against God, eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they, they, their eyes were opened and they came to know good and evil the same way a sick man knows his disease differently than his doctor does, right? differently than his physician does. His physician can give an accurate diagnosis, understands what's happening, knows uh, what treatment needs to be involved. The physician has this sort of objectively and from a position of health and from a position of being able to help. But the sick man knows. He has his eyes opened. He knows this experientially and personally and as one who suffers, right? as one who uh, suffers the state of his disease. He suffers the misery that he's brought on himself. Uh, in this case, the sin we've brought on ourselves, <clears throat> we, we know good and evil experientially, and we suffer it. Right? We don't know it objectively. Uh, we don't know it the way God intended for us to know it. We know it personally. And that is not good, right? Because immediately after doing this, their eyes were opened, and they felt this sense of condemnation, Right? They, they were condemned in their own judgment. It was an instinctive sense of real guilt, right? real brokenness. They couldn't stand themselves. Right? And that's the way that it is for us with sin. I, I think a lot of times you don't even need God's word to come in and tell you you're a sinner. You know it. There's something inside of you that knows it before you hear that external word. Right? Before you're confronted with somebody else discovering your sin, you know it yourself, and you can't stand yourself. And there's this internal writhing and discomfort, and sometimes to the level of disgust, right? where it becomes unendurable, unbearable. We're disgusted with ourselves, and we become locked in a state of self-consciousness, right? self-absorption. We're fixated on this. We can't escape the gravity of our own sin, the misery of it, right? The misery of our guilt. Our attention is fixed on ourselves. We say, there's something wrong with me. I've done something wrong. I can't fix that. I can't erase it. Um, and I know that if others discover it, they'll reject me. If others discover what I'm really like, on the inside, what, what I really am like, they will reject me, so I've got to hide what I'm really like. I've got to pretend that it isn't there. Right? Uh, I've got to draw attention away from it. I've got to hide. I've got to cover it. 
Self-preservation requires covering and concealing and protecting, holding other people at a distance so they don't get to know me quite well enough to discover that I'm worth actually rejecting. Um, We need to create an image. We need to create an identity for ourselves and for others to believe. And I've quoted him several times uh, lately. Clifford Williams has a book called Singleness of Heart. I think it's worth reading. He says, there's scarcely a thought in our idle reveries, basically just always going on in the background of our minds. There's scarcely a thought there that does not somehow shore up a sagging sense of worth. We know we've corrupted our worth. We know from our sin we've, we've, we've made ourselves uh, deserving of rejection rather than acceptance. We sense that instinctively. You actually don't need somebody else to tell you that. Uh, we, we sense that instinctively about ourselves, and so we do deliberate work to cover up our guilt. That's what Adam and Eve do here. They, they sow, right? Uh, how they learned to sow, why they learned to sow, why they're employing these, these talents that they might have developed in uh, cultivating the, the garden that they were placed in. Uh, don't know exactly where their idea for clothing came from, Somehow they knew we've got to cover our nakedness. That nakedness really is, it's uh, maybe more than symbolic, but it's, it's largely symbolic for a sense of their own guilt, a sense of their own shame, and I cannot stand here before you and let you know who I am and let you know who I really am. That is too much for me. It's overwhelming for me. I've got to cover myself. So they go to work. They go to work. They didn't have a sewing machine. Who knows how they put it together? but they made loincloths out of fig leaves, right? And uh, they did deliberate work to cover their guilt so that they could at least pretend that relationship would be bearable again, right? And that's what we do uh, with most of our, of our lives. That's, that's all of us. Uh, you should read these first couple of chapters of Genesis and say, oh, yeah, that's me. Oh, yeah, that's me. And, and as we look at this, this thing with the fig leaf, we, sh- we should say, yeah, that's me. Um, we develop philosophies. Right? We do this individually and corporately. We develop philosophies where we can pretend that we're not naked. There's no such thing as sin or real guilt. Right? Goodness, evil, it's all subjective. There is no absolute morality. So um, if I feel bad about who I am and what I've done... I probably just need to train myself to think differently about that because it's an illusion. There is no such thing as sin. We pretend it away. It's like the uh, emperor's new clothes, right? I'm not naked. I've got clothes on. We're pretending. Right? We're pretending away with our philosophy. With our, uh, A lot of religions are uh, geared toward that. Morality. I can cover my own sin. I can work very hard to make up for the evil that I've done. Right? The breaking of God's law, the breaking of the commandments, the offense against him, the personal offense against other people. Yeah, I've committed those things, but, <clears throat> but if I, I, I redeem myself by cleaning up my act, right? by acting well, by becoming righteous, I can cover my own sin. I can avoid the sense of guilt. I can work off the sense of shame. Right? And so we try to live good lives. We feel compelled to live good lives without even thinking about it. We feel compelled to do what is right 
And if we stop to think about it, we'd realize it's to cover up the fact we know we're not right. We know there's something broken about us that we really can't fix. And you can't just explain it away. Uh, we use time, right? We just use the simple passing of time to erase a sense of guilt. I'll feel better about myself in a few days. Yeah, I did this thing today. I really lost it at work or really blew up at my spouse or whatever it was. I did that, but if I just give it a few days, that sense of shame and guilt will just wane and disappear, and I can ignore it after that. Right? It's like we're, we're covering ourselves with just a little bit of time. I'll probably forget how bad it really was. Uh, we do this with actual clothing. We cover ourselves with clothing because what you're doing is you're creating an image with your clothing. You're creating an identity. You're showing other people what you want them to see. Right? What do you want people to see? You're a diligent, hardworking, white-collar kind of guy. Or you're an attractive woman. You want people to see goodness when they look at you. And so we, with our very clothing, like they did in the garden, we, um, we present an identity. We present an image. We try to manipulate our reputation in the sight of others, even with things like our, the, the stuff we wear. Right? Um, social media. Um, people can't really get to know you through Facebook. You know that, right? Because everything you put on Facebook, you put on Facebook. You control it. Um, I don't put nearly as much on Facebook as happens in my, in my everyday life, right? Some people put almost everything that happens in their everyday life. But I control my image on Facebook. I want people to think a certain thing when they look at me, when they look at my social media account, right? I'm controlling my image. I'm controlling my identity. I'm getting people to think one thing of me rather than the other, the deep, abiding thing that's dwelling under the surface. Uh, we do this with religion. We cover ourselves. We do deliberate work like sowing fig leaves to cover our sense of shame and guilt with our religion. Uh, and this is especially bad. This is especially bad, and we're pretty good at it. We're pretty good at it, especially in circles like ours. Right? Um, We've got people who come across as successful, come across as uh, theologically intelligent and, and bright and moral types of people. Uh, we fool others sometimes, but really we do this to fool ourselves. Right? We try hard at religion. We try hard at uh, reading the scriptures and prayer and devotion and following God and, and keeping his commandments, we try hard at those things primarily so that we can fool ourselves into thinking that we're okay with God, that there's nothing really wrong here anymore, right? Um, we do it out of self-righteousness, and, uh, and that's hypocrisy. We're not, we're not um, uh, acknowledging who we really are before God, and before other people. And you know what? We fool ourselves. We don't really fool other people a lot of the time. That's why uh, one of the, the great charges that you hear against the church, um, especially nowadays, is that church is full of hypocrites. And yeah, we do the fig leaf thing like everybody else does, right? Everybody's a hypocrite to some degree or another, <clears throat> but we're especially good at it in the church. These are all attempts to cover our nakedness. 
right? To cover our shame, to cover that, that sense of being exposed before God that we just have intrinsically in us because of our sin. And uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that, has it ever occurred to you that in that one phrase about the fig leaves, you have a complete summation of the history of civilization. The whole time we repeat this procedure of stitching together a few fig leaves in order to try to hide our nakedness, but it is all inadequate. It is all even ridiculous. Is it not foolish? Is it not almost laughable? If you're, if you're reading this text with fresh eyes, you say, fig leaves? Really? Right? The attempt is laughable, as if by sewing kind of crudely with whatever instruments they have, sewing some fig leaves together to create a loincloth and cover part of our bodies would uh, be the creation of an invisibility cloak or impenetrable armor or the most beautiful and glorious of robes. Um, it's an illusion. And they're, they're fooling themselves into thinking this illusion is going to work. Right? And uh, it's the utter distortion of reality. And it's, it's through the, the lens of self-centeredness, self-protection. There's something wrong with me that I've got to hide from God and from other people. This will work. Erect some sort of barrier. Right? The attempt is laughable. The reality is not laughable. The reality is, um, this is the beginning of death and hell. This is the, the very beginning of death and hell, the thing God promised would happen when Adam and Eve sinned, and the thing that happens to all of us when we sin. We find ourselves at a distance. We've got to keep God at a distance. We've got to keep others at a distance. We've got to withdraw, and this is instantaneous, and it's self-imposed. We cannot stand to be known by God as sinners. We cannot stand to be known by other people as people who are maybe even less than average. Right? We cannot stand to be known by others as sinners. We are unhappy in our, uh, in our sin. We're, we're miserable. It's the state of misery. We're wretched. It is unbearable to be thus exposed and all of this comes from us. All of this comes, this is our instinctive response to something being wrong with us. Right? It's the beginning of death and hell. And it might be ridiculous, the fig leaves, or the clothing, or letting a little time pass, or the religious and moral pursuits, or the Facebook reputation, it might be ridiculous, but we've got to have a covering we cannot stand not having a covering. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence, literally they hid themselves from the face of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they couldn't stand to look at his face, to be seen by him. They hid from him. They discovered right away, they discovered right away that their attempts to cover themselves uh, fell pitifully short. It was not going to be adequate. The fig leaves weren't going to do the job we needed done, right? Everything you do in your life, 
to try to erect an illusion or raise an image, an identity, a reputation about yourself in God's sight, in other people's sight, even in your own sight, when you begin to come into contact with the true and living God, uh, all of that disappears for the sham that it is, right? It's exposed for the sham that it is. They might have operated under the delusion that the fig leaves would suffice until they heard God coming. Um, Then their only response, their only recourse was to run and hide, which is, of course, impossible. You've got no recourse. You cannot run and hide. Um, John, uh, the one who wrote the gospel and a few letters and the book of Revelation at the end of the scriptures, <clears throat> constantly uh, his, his writings are full of images and themes that come from the Old Testament. And in Revelation chapter 6, he says, The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You know God is coming in wrath, and you can't cover yourself well enough, you can't pretend and perform well enough, and you can't even hide. Even if you were buried underneath a mountain, you can't hide from God, what are you going to do? It's unbearable. It's unbearable. God's presence utterly exposes us to the reality of our rebellion. That's what we're trying to hide here, the reality of our rebellion. You can try however you like to cover up what's wrong with you. Pretend, perform, amounts to hypocrisy. It just falls right apart when you see God's face. It falls right apart. Uh, Jesus said in Luke Chapter 12, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This covering up and this pretending, right? He says, beware of hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Um, this, is, this is a vision of the final judgment where we all stand before God fully exposed. And Joe Pope likes technology. He always envisions it as a huge jumbotron where all the secret thoughts of our hearts and our minds and the whispers in the dark are displayed for all to see. Um, Hebrews 4, no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's no escaping it. We must give an account. We sing, before your clear and searching sight, our secret sins are brought to light. That's going to happen. Whether you want to believe it or not. Try as hard as you might to deny it, pretend it away, uh, perform well enough to try to cover that up, run and hide. Um, you're doing that out of fear. You're doing that out of fear. We, we cover and we run and hide out of fear of God's rejection of us. The ultimate, absolute, eternal, everlasting rejection of a good God. 
we fear that. And uh, we fear that if someone discovers the truth about us, we won't be accepted. We can't stand the thought of being rejected, even if it means on our own account, absolutely withdrawing from all relationships so that no one knows us. How's that for a miserable paradox? It's a miserable paradox. We want so desperately to be accepted that we hide. We want so desperately to be accepted by God that we would run and hide from him rather than be exposed as sinners and rejected. We're in a quandary, right? We were made for true, pure intimacy with him and with each other, but we create false identities, images, illusions of ourselves. We hide behind them so that we can trick ourselves into thinking that we're being accepted and and we're loved. But, um, But when we pretend and perform, when we run from God, we're running from the only one who is, is our true hope. We're running from our only hope for everlasting love. Because God did not come into the garden. What did he do? What did he do here at the end of chapter 3? He did not come into the garden to destroy Adam and Eve. Ultimately, he did not come to destroy them. He came to make promises to them about their redemption. In spite of their rebellion fully acknowledging their rebellion, promises that he was going to make things right, promises that he was going to fix what was broken, promises about their redemption. He knew them inside and out. He knows you better than you know yourself. Inside and out. And he saw through Adam and Eve's sham covering and hiding in the middle of the trees. He saw through that. And he still loved them and provided a real covering for them, a real one. He provided it. It says in in, uh, chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So they did the little tiny little fig leaf loincloth thing. He made garments of skins for them. And he clothed them. He knows, he, he knows that you need covering. Right? He knows because of your shame and your guilt and your exposure, you actually do need covering. They stood exposed. They needed a covering of innocence, a covering of real righteousness. They needed a new identity, really. Uh, and that covering would cost another living creature its life. And uh, it's because innocence had to cover up sin. And life needed to cover up death. And that's the point of all the hundreds of years and thousands of years of animal sacrifices to show how great the cost for our true covering. You need to be covered. God's going to provide it. And it will be costly. Here's countless animals who lost their lives in sacrifice for this. And ultimately, there's only one covering that truly suffices, and that is being clothed in the righteousness, in the life of Jesus Christ himself. The pure human, the true human, being clothed with his righteousness. In his sinless life, Jesus was doing work. He was sewing, in a sense, new garments for us. He was creating a covering for us. In his sinless life, as he went about his whole life, Loving God, obeying God, loving his neighbors as himself, even though they didn't deserve it. 
He sewed the garments of righteousness for you, the garment of, of true and pure humanity, this new identity. He sewed that for you that it would, would cover your sinful nature. Right? And on the cross, when he became sin for us, he took our garments, our filthy rags, even the best, even the best garments we've created for ourselves are no, nothing but filthy rags, the scripture says. Our greatest righteousness, filthy rags. He took that on himself, and they were shredded up along with him. Our covering, uh, our true covering that we needed would cost the only true human his very life. The only one of us to live as a human was supposed to live, it cost him his very life. And in his resurrection then, God vindicated him, God vindicated Jesus Christ in his beauty and his glory and his righteousness and his perfection, God vindicated him and God declared him good and acceptable as the true human, the one who lived on our behalf. And as we're united with him in his resurrection, his new life is ours. His righteousness is counted as ours. The acceptance that he deserves in heaven is ours. His ability to stand before the face of God without fear, but knowing that he is beloved, his ability to do that is ours. And now you have a new identity. You have a new image. It's something you could not sew for yourself. You could not put it together and craft it well enough for yourself. You have a new one. It's no illusion. It's no illusion. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, then God looks at you and he sees him as your covering. He's the covering you need, and he is yours. He's for you. Galatians 3 says, As many of, of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That language is, you've put him on like clothing, like a garment. If you've been baptized, if you've put your faith in Christ, if you've become part of his people who look to him for salvation as he's offered in the gospel then you have put on like a garment Jesus Christ himself. You have a new covering and new clothing. You're clothed with Jesus Christ. And the psalmist says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I stopped covering. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You've got to turn away from trying to cover your own shame and, and go to the only covering that's offered to you that will truly work. That's the covering of the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, his humanity. And that covering <clears throat> that we need throughout the scriptures, um, throughout the scriptures our salvation is likened to a, a marriage union. Right? And, and uh, in those terms, so many times we see this language of covering and garments, we see it as it's the wedding garments that are being placed on us. We were made for pure intimacy, pure mutual knowledge of God and each other, the kind of thing that a marriage reflects, right? That real intimacy that you can enjoy in a marriage. Uh, you're made for that with God. And your salvation is you being brought into that relationship with God where he's the great bridegroom and we are his bride. And, and, Garments, wedding garments, are a part of that uh, language. If we're going to be fully accepted, if we're going to be welcomed in to the bridegroom's chamber, chambers and his house and that relationship, we need the proper garments. 
and those are garments that he gives to us by his grace. Isaiah 61 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So many places in the scriptures this kind of language comes out. Jesus likens the kingdom of God uh, in one of his parables to a wedding feast that a king throws for his son. And if you're going to be there, part of that wedding feast, part of that celebration, you need the wedding garments. And if you have the wedding garments, you have real intimacy, real delight with God. That's what the kingdom of God will be. It's like the greatest wedding ever, the greatest intimacy ever And we need to be covered in order to experience that kind of intimacy. Because if we stand there naked on our own, we're we're exposed and we're ashamed of who we are. We need glory to cover us. We need true humanity to cover us. The wedding supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, it was granted to the church, it was granted to the bride to clothe herself in fine linen. This kind of language shows up everywhere in the scriptures. We need a covering you need to stop trying to cover yourself. Like the psalmist said, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I I didn't cover my own sin. I laid myself bare to you knowing that you would be gracious to me and you were gracious to me, right? You need to stop trying to cover. You need to stop trying to run and hide. You need to beware, like Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, that trying to cover yourself and manage your reputation in God's sight and in other people's sight, because you don't need to do that anymore. You don't need to cover yourself. You don't need to hide from God. You don't need to manage your identity, your image, your reputation. You don't need to pretend. You don't need to perform. Jesus came to find you. He came to forgive you. And he came to cover you. So you need to run to him and throw yourself on his mercy and confess your sins to him. And and he will cover you by his grace with his own humanity. And in him alone can you stand before the face of God, exposed but not afraid. Exposed and, and not ashamed because you're covered in Christ. And so in him you can have full, true, pure, delightful intimacy with God that will last forever. That's the only way. So put your faith in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is hard for us to um, accept that these things we've trained ourselves for a whole lifetime to hide from you and from one another and even from ourselves, that we can let those barriers down, we can drop our resistance the thing that would make us afraid of rejection, you know all about it. And you've moved into this world and into our lives in grace and mercy. And you offer a true and beautiful and glorious covering through the sacrifice, through the life of your own son at great cost to yourself. And so we we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on Christ, that you would help us to change in our thoughts and in our affections and in our attitudes and in our actions, that you would make us the kind of people who stop with every ounce of our strength trying to sew fig leaves together for ourselves or run and hide in the forest from you and from each other. We 
pray that you would help us to turn away from these things and find the true rest and peace and righteousness that's found in Christ alone so that we can be in a relationship with you that is satisfying one where we know that you know us and yet uh, you accept us because of your grace through Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.